And I'm Angel Shang. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, October 1st. Coming up, an interview with neuroscientist and addiction researcher Scott Swartzwelder talking about his research on reversing brain damage caused by binge drinking in young rats. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A new research paper on CO2 utilization came out this week in Nature from Stanford University and the Technical University of Denmark. Turning excess CO2 into sustainable fuels using electrochemistry is a goal that researchers have had for a long time. Plants can convert CO2 to complex carbon-rich sugars naturally, but that one chemical step, removing one oxygen to make carbon monoxide, has not been commercialized using electrochemistry. Only at high temperatures. Electrochemistry would open up the possibility of using solar and wind power to do this conversion. Chemists know how to turn carbon monoxide into useful products like diesel fuels, methanol, and plastics by the addition of hydrogen. So once you form carbon monoxide, chemists are off and running. During electrochemistry or electrolysis, chemists drive reactions on an electrode surface using electricity. There have been several challenges for using electrochemistry to convert CO2 to CO. First, the process uses way too much electricity. Second, there is more than one chemical reaction that could occur. So carbon dioxide not only reduces to carbon monoxide, it may also reduce all the way to solid carbon. And although solid carbon is a fuel, and there are even some researchers looking to convert CO2 to coal, the solid carbon is also a real problem. It gets stuck on the electrode and it cracks it. And it also reduces the amount of useful carbon monoxide that you're generating. So currently, the most efficient CO2 electrolysis technology uses a nickel-based catalyst. But what these Stanford and Danish researchers developed is an electrode that uses cerium oxide instead of nickel. They are able to reduce CO2 into CO with 100% selectivity and without producing that undesired solid carbon. This is an important step forward for those who want to use electrochemistry using sustainable power to convert CO2 to sustainable fuels. A new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that's the IPCC, came out last week. The report, called the Special Report on the Ocean and Cryosphere in a Changing Climate, may have been eclipsed by other actions on climate. The United Nations' first climate summit since 2014 occasioned a visit by young activist Greta Thunberg, which motivated hundreds of thousands to take to the streets. The new report is worth considering. It describes how the watery parts of the planet are already entering a new phase. After 0.2 meters of sea level rise since the late 1800s, some coastal cities flood routinely during high tides. With the Arctic warming at double the global rate, sea ice is in rapid decline, causing severe disruption to indigenous communities and wildlife. Permafrost is thawing, undermining infrastructure and releasing uncertain amounts of buried carbon. The new assessment paints a grimmer picture of the future. By 2100, within the lifetime of those striking children, Global sea level would likely rise by up to 1.1 meters if greenhouse gas emissions continue unabated. The last IPCC report had set the upper limit at 0.98 meters. Even with steep cuts in fossil fuel burning, the oceans will rise between 0.29 and 0.59 meters. 
Without action, rare catastrophic storm surges will become common within 30 years. Maybe the electrochemical processes Angel just described can mitigate some of those effects. This work was published last week in the journal Science. Mark your calendar if you are fascinated with ancient Egypt. Located near the southern border of ancient Egyptian territory, Nuri is the largest royal Nubian cemetery, and its pyramids served as the resting places for more than 60 kings and queens, including the 25th dynasty pharaoh, Taraco. Today, groundwater has flooded most of the subterranean pyramid chambers, presenting special cha- challenges for archaeologists. To learn more about exploring this ancient ruin, join Dr. Paul Kreisman, director at the University of Arizona's Egyptian Expedition, as he discusses his underwater excavations and the new discoveries made during recent efforts to explore the pyramid of the last Nubian king interred at Nuri, Nastazan. This talk will be presented next Wednesday, October 9th at 7 p.m. in Room 270, Hale Science, on the CU Boulder campus. First one in, last one out Given this town, lost the talking about But they don't know, but they don't know People say I got a drinking problem That ain't no reason to stop Professor Scott Swartzwelder studies the effects of alcohol on the brain. In past work, he and colleagues have identified specific areas of the brain damaged by drinking, especially in adolescent rats. In this interview, he describes how this damage occurs and, amazingly, how treatment later in life can actually reverse it. Yes, on the Science Show at KGNU. You Thank you. You're welcome. You recently published a really interesting paper talking about your findings where you reversed some alcohol-induced brain damage in rats. So before we get into the damage and the reversal, tell us a little bit about the rat model that you use, because whenever I mention the term adolescent rats, people always laugh. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it's a it's an idea that uh, obviously takes a little bit of explaining because adolescence in a rat is a little bit different than adolescence in a human. So, for example, in a rat, adolescence lasts maybe fifteen twenty days, right? Right, uh, or or a little on either side of that. Whereas in humans, I mean, you know, it might last fifteen years. Sure, right. So it's it, it's a different thing. So obviously, as with any animal model uh, of a human problem, we have to be careful both with how we establish the model and how we interpret the results, right? So uh, in this instance, though, uh, there are some good reasons to be able to interpret it uh, cautiously, but, uh, you know, but, but in a detailed way. One is we really have mapped out what adolescence is in the rat. And so even though it's only... a a 20-ish day period, uh, we do have a pretty clear sense of the kinds of changes that go on during that period. Uh, They're very similar, both in terms of the behavior of the animals and the way the brain is developing to what goes on in humans. It's just compressed. So 
when we do studies like this, we just have, you know, relatively little time to do our alcohol exposures or whatever, but we can feel pretty confident that we're, that we're hitting that animal model at a developmental time, which is really tightly parallel in many ways to adolescence as a developmental period in humans. Uh, the other thing that makes this particular study and kind of studies relevant is that the brain region that we're looking at, namely the hippocampus, which is uh, critical for learning and memory and some other things, is actually very, very similar in rats and humans. It's, it's a lot more similar than it is different, and in part because that is a very, very old kind of brain structure. It's not one of the parts of the brain where humans have a whole lot of it and other animals don't. So because we're looking at a relatively old brain region and a really circumscribed and well-understood developmental period, we feel pretty confident about our interpretation. Right. So I do want to stress that point a little bit, too, for the listeners, that there's a whole body of research that's been going on for decades, really, that's established these behavioral and neuroanatomical parameters. That's right. Yeah, we got into this business uh, in the mid-90s, actually, published the first uh, paper looking at differences in how alcohol affected the hippocampus in adolescents compared to adults. So that's a long time ago now, and since then, the field has really fleshed out a lot. We know a lot more about adolescents and a lot more about alcohol's effects on these brain structures. So let's jump into the alcohol work now. And it probably won't surprise many people to learn that drinking at an early age can have exceptionally profound results on the brain. What are the kinds of damages that you see in rats and then presumably in humans when adolescents do some heavy drinking? Well, there are a lot of changes. And uh, uh, in particular, uh, there there seem to be particular areas of drinking the brain and particular types of behaviors that are that are affected uh, most strongly. Uh, one of them has to do with uh, learning and memory function. And so the structure in the brain that we looked at in this particular study, uh, as I pointed out, is, is critical for memory function, and particularly for the ability to form new memories. It doesn't have as much to do with the recall of old ones, but uh, rather the building of new ones. And uh, people have known for a long time that alcohol had a powerful effect on the hippocampus when given acutely, that is, a single dose. But when we showed that, um, that alcohol does that more powerfully in the adolescent hippocampus than in the adult hippocampus, it immediately begged the question of, well, since adolescence is when people start drinking and often when they drink at higher levels than they will for the rest of their lives, then what happens to the hippocampus and hippocampally-driven behaviors like learning and memory uh, if a person exposes themselves repeatedly? So one of the things that happens um, is that uh, the hippocampus uh, loses cells. Uh, It doesn't have the same capacity to retain its, you know, the number of brain cells uh, that are there. And there's another process, too, that's really important and almost uh, unique. It's certainly distinctive to the hippocampus, and that is that throughout life, it continues to to create new cells, right? So the birthing of new neurons, or what we call neurogenesis, is, is a hallmark of hippocampal function. And 
it's really important for the process of learning and memory. It seems to also be really important uh, in terms of treatment of depression and keeping people from becoming depressed. And what we find is that adolescent alcohol exposure also compromises both of those things. That is, it makes it more difficult for the hippocampus to make new neurons, and it makes it more easy for the hippocampus to lose the neurons that it has. So I want to stress this point for the listeners that the hippocampus is the brain region involved in memory, especially. So learning, if we're going to learn new things and remember them, we have to have a functioning hippocampus. And so this is a really cool and unique aspect of the hippocampus that it can grow new neurons because for a long time people didn't think that actually happened in the brain. But it does happen a lot in the neural campus. So if that ability is compromised, then one's ability to learn and especially to remember um, is also compromised. And all those movies, there's been a a number of movies in this genre of um, like long-term amnesia um, involve people with damage to their hippocampus. So that's been dramatized a lot in films. That's right. It's it's one of the it's one of the things in in neuroscience actually that kind of started with one of the first links between brain and behavior. As people have understood about hippocampus and memory function for quite a long time now, uh, it really uh, it was in in the 1950s that uh, that we really came to understand that through some study of human patients with uh, epilepsy, and uh, so. It's that's been really, so you're right, it's sort of a grounding finding in the neuroscience of behavior as related to memory and hippocampal function. So what exactly does alcohol do on a cellular basis in the hippocampus? Yeah, well, that's, that's a really good question. It, it does a lot of things. One thing it does is it decreases the ability of those cells to... Uh, change in the way that they're supposed to change uh, when they get uh, their normal input. So one thing that the hippocampus does is, is cells interact with one another when information comes in, and they engage in this process called neural plasticity or synaptic plasticity, which really just means the ability of inputs to one nerve cell to change the way that nerve cell behaves, right? And that's a, that's a strong underpinning of the learning and memory process. Alcohol really disrupts that. Right? It, makes it, it makes it much more difficult for that to occur. And importantly, if you look at the adolescent brain compared to the adult brain, alcohol impairs that plasticity function much more potently in the adolescent brain than in the adult brain. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a really important distinction. Um, and then, on, again, at the cellular level, uh, in terms of chronic exposure, this is, you know, you expose animals in uh, adolescence and then look at them in adulthood, right? So they actually, they haven't seen alcohol for a long time, right? They, they get exposed during adolescence. They never see alcohol again, right? This is in this present study we're talking about. And then you look at them in adulthood. And one of the really interesting things we found, in addition to the decrease of neurogenesis and the increase of cell death, is that at a cellular level, they show these markers for neuroinflammation. So it's, so there's an inflammatory response that gets elevated in these hippocampal cells and elsewhere in the brain, too. We just happen to have looked at hippocampus in this uh, study. And so that's a really interesting uh, clue for us about what might be happening at a, happening at a 
cellular or perhaps even molecular level. And it has to do with this link of early alcohol exposure to later inflammatory liability in the hippocampus. And do you have any thoughts on what mechanism might be causing that? Like, is there some damage to the cell and then the glial or immune system cells in the brain um, converge on that damaged cell and generate an inflammatory response? Yes, that's a good question. And uh, yeah, there, there are a couple of clues that we have. One is, uh, as you say, glial cells uh, become activated. And we know that after adolescent alcohol exposure, one particular type of glial cell called astrocytes uh, become more activated. We've shown that in the past. Then when glial cells, glial, cell, um, glial cells, particularly astrocytes, get activated often in response to injury, Okay, so it could be that astrocytes are interacting with neurons in a way uh, to create some of these problems because the astrocytes interpret the alcohol exposure as having been an injury, right? And they react accordingly. That's one possibility. Uh, Another possibility, interestingly, with respect to the neuroinflammatory response that we've seen in the hippocampus is that uh, and this has to do with the denepazil part of the study, right, where we reverse it. The fact that we were able to reverse these inflammatory markers with denepazil suggests that it might have something to do with the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, because what denepazil does is it increases the available levels of acetylcholine in the hippocampus, which is part of why it's used as a treatment for early Alzheimer's disease. So it... and. So acetylcholine itself can be anti-inflammatory under certain circumstances. And so it could be that it reflects a decrease in acetylcholine availability. So, you know, so those are two of the possible mechanisms that we're looking at now to account for these particular changes. Right. So, okay, great. I'm glad that you mentioned the drug denepazil, because let's get into your actual experiments, because this is really cool. And um, so now we've laid the, the, the baseline, and people know that early adolescent exposure to alcohol damages these important cells in the hippocampus, and the mechanism could be inflammatory inflammation or um, immune-mediated inflammatory response, and you were actually able to reverse some of this anatomical damage. So set the stage and tell us about again about the drug and how it's been used classically in treating Alzheimer's and then what you did with it in the rats. Right. Yeah, that's actually the perhaps the most striking aspect of this study is that we were able to reverse those adolescent alcohol-induced brain changes. So Denepazil uh, is a drug that is commercially uh, marketed as Aricept, and it's used quite commonly uh, in people who are suffering cognitive decline, particularly memory decline. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's used quite a bit. It's well tolerated. It's a, it's a very common treatment, if you want to call it a treatment, uh, for some of the symptoms of early memory decline. It, it doesn't help people much after after they've lost a lot of their memory function and they're really sort of deep into the Alzheimer's process. But at the very beginning and at the time maybe before an Alzheimer's uh, uh, diagnosis, uh, uh, 
and there's a period of time where a person's kind of like on that edge between just not functioning quite right from a memory and cognitive standpoint that doesn't really seem demented yet, that's where this drug can help, at least for a while. So it's not really a treatment, it's not a cure, but it's a way to keep the symptoms at bay and give people uh, maybe, you know, a, a couple of years of good quality of cognitive life beyond what they would have had. So it's a good drug. Um, so what we did is uh, we exposed animals to alcohol during their adolescence intermittently, sort of trying to mimic the, uh, you know, the, the binge pattern, so-called, that a lot of adolescents uh, engage in. Uh, so we didn't give them alcohol every day. We gave them gave them an alcohol, a dose of alcohol, and some studies we get in every other day. Sometimes we do it two days on, one day off, two days on, two days off. Just trying to mimic that, that kind of ran, randomish pattern that, that kids drink in a lot of times. And then it, they get to the point where it's the end of adolescence, we stop the alcohol, and they never see another, they never see another dose of alcohol the rest of their lives. Just let them grow up, they become adults, and then you take their brains and we look at the hippocampus in these various ways, right? We look at the, you know, the capacity for neurogenesis, the markers for neurogenesis. We look at the markers that reflect increased cell death. And then we looked at all of these neuroinflammatory or neuroimmune markers as well. So some of the animals just got that treatment I described. Other animals, however, for a few days prior to our taking their brains, we gave them daily doses of dinepazil, the same way a human would, would get it, right? Just sort of daily dosing, typical sort of clinical uh, approach. And at the end of that few days, then those animals' brains were taken. And we saw, well, first of all, we were, you know, we were very interested in the fact that, that the adolescent alcohol exposure decreased neurogenesis and increased cell death markers. We were even more interested that it that it uh, in, that showed all the increased all these markers having to do with neuroinflammatory processes that suggests why those cells might be dying or not getting born. But we were really shocked by not shocked by because we thought it might happen, but surprised by the fact that the nepazil reversed almost every single one of those markers, every single one of those changes. It reversed the neurogenesis problem, so the animals were building new cells like they would. It reversed the cell death receptor uh, marker, and uh, so they weren't, you know, they didn't no longer have the propensity to lose cells as easily as they normally would. And it reversed most of the neuroinflammatory markers too. So we didn't expect to see all of that. I expected maybe the nepazil would, would reverse something. But I didn't expect it to reverse virtually everything. Yeah, that's really an amazing story. So, of course, my next question, you probably know what it is, is are you planning to do the behavioral experiments where you give them the chronic um, intermittent exposure as adolescents and then give them Aricept as adults and see if they can their memory then improves? Yeah, now that that is that is what I figured the next question would be, <laughs> and it's a really good one. And and there's there's a more complicated answer to it than than one might think. And that is, interestingly, we find that animals who get a- adolescent alcohol exposure, and when you test their memory in adulthood under normal circumstances, they actually don't look that bad, right? So they they kind of go along. They can learn things. 
Uh, they might be a little slower. They're not quite as efficient in some ways behaviorally as you as you test their memory. But they they don't look so bad. Oh, right? okay. But but they seem vulnerable to challenges with respect to their cognitive function. Right. So if, for example, you take an adolescent alcohol exposed animal. And you give it now in adulthood a single dose, just a little bit of alcohol before you try to teach them something. That dose of alcohol will be far more disruptive on their ability to learn as adults than it would have been if they hadn't had the adolescent alcohol exposure. Okay. So, so that's it's a way. It's a way of saying. I mean, we happen to be using alcohol as the challenge, but if you think of it as in more general terms, right? It's like their memory looks kind of okay, except under challenging circumstances, right? So, which is really interesting because it's consistent with what we see in humans. Right. If drinking, dur- if drinking during adolescence was screwing up everybody's memory for the rest of their lives, 50% of the people in this country would be right. walking around with profound memory deficits. Right. Because right? people drink, right? But... <laughs> But what a lot of students say to me, I talk to them about this research, they say, well, you know, look, it's, uh, you know, you, I got all my friends, they went to college or 10 years down the road, you know, they, they look okay. And my answer to them is, yep, they might look okay when you just ask them to remember a phone number or something like that. But what happens when you ask them to learn under stress? Right. What happens when right. you ask them to learn after a, after a little knock on the head? Or after they've been drinking a little bit. Sure. And and moreover, just because you don't see a deficit in these sort of baseline tests, it doesn't mean that you wouldn't see a deficit as the as the difficulty as you ask them to learn more and more things, right? So so it's this very interesting topic of how how much of your memory capacity are you willing to risk? Right, yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of work to do in this system, and unfortunately we are out of time, but maybe we can revisit this in the future when you've got more behavioral data. And I want to thank you, Scott, for talking to us today. It's my pleasure. I appreciate your interest. That was Professor Scott Swartzwelder of Duke University describing his studies of brain damage in adolescent rats caused by binge drinking. Treatment with the Alzheimer's drug Aricept reversed the damage in the rats when they were adults. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Beth Bennett, with additional contributions from Anjel Shang. Our, our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett. And I'm Angel Shang. Go, uh, one is, is the Western view of the world, which looks upon the world as a construct.